Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. All summer long, Hey Amarillo has been supported by the Texas Outdoor Musical in Paladero Canyon. If you haven't seen it since you were a kid, you need to go see it. If you haven't seen it since last summer, you need to go see it. There's a lot that's new this year, and this isn't just sponsor copy. This is me, Jason, telling you to go watch this show before the performances end for the season. It's so much fun. Grab your tickets now at texasshow.com. That's texas-show.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to the early childhood education provider, Opportunity School, online at opportunityschool.com. Also to Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in Amarillo, online at ttuhsc.edu, and to Education Credit Union, online at educationcu.com. Read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Kim May, and I've known Kim professionally for, well, more than 20 years, which means I've watched her career evolve from the telecommunications industry back in the early days of cell phones into what she does now in the marketing and advertising worlds. Today, Kim is the CEO founder of NoBox Creative, a local marketing agency. She's done creative work for businesses you recognize all over this area from the Big Texan to Waterstill. And she's also consulted with a number of local political campaigns. Now, all of this work has given Kim a deep connection to the local small business community, to local government, and a lot more. But there's a whole lot more to her story than just what she does, her career. And so we dig into that in this episode. Here's Kim May. Kim May, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an honor to have you. I know that uh, probably more than many of my guests, I've known you for a long time. We've known each other and worked together maybe 20 years ago. Yes, something. Which, um, I can't believe we're that yeah, old. Which but. is crazy. But I, I do want to start with you like I have started with uh, all my other guests and just ask how you ended up in the Amarillo area in the first place. I grew up in Denver. And I, the short story is I, came, I was going through a divorce and came to kind of get my head on straight and um, ended up staying. Why did you come here? I like, know. why was Amarillo the get my head on straight destination? <laughs> yeah, from Denver. from Denver. Amarillo is not a head People on straight. People leave Amarillo to go to the yeah. mountains to figure stuff out. And so. it's so interesting because having grown up in Denver and the big city and all of the traffic, the things that I love about Amarillo are what make us special. And it's interesting when people grow up here, they want to go to Denver mm-hmm. and face all of the stuff that I was leaving. But my aunt and uncle live here. And okay. so I came for a place to stay. I was really broken. This is probably the question that like, you're starting off with the most personal part of me instead of easing into it, which is funny. And you use what you want. But the I don't think we're authentic as enough enough as people and Mm -hmm. we do the high level stories and each of us have such a history and such a past and the layers of us that make us who we are is so important. So high leveling a story just feels unfair to the people who've gone through things. And when you say I was going through a terrible divorce, it doesn't really, that's a sentence that encapsulates like a huge And so really I came broken and Mm -hmm. my, who is now my ex-husband had broken my ribs 
I um, was leaving a situation I didn't know. I knew I didn't want to go home and stay and just have it continue to be worse than just be one of those people. I didn't know I was in a situation of domestic violence until I was sitting in a sheriff's office with broken ribs, um, marks around my throat, and just huge bruises up my arm. And a sheriff handed me a brochure on domestic violence, and I was sitting there. And um, I'd been in the hospital, and they they don't leave. So once you go to the hospital with signs of domestic violence, they actually make you stay. And I had been up all night. I was in a terrible state. I'd been through a horrible ordeal the night before, just extreme violence. And I begged them. I said, will you please let me go home? Like, I can't wait here all day for the sheriff. And we're in Denver, and the county sheriff's going to take hours. And so they made me promise that I'd drive to the sheriff's office. And I did, not really even realizing what I was going to get myself into. And so I'm sitting there, and they hand me a flyer on domestic violence, and I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this every single one of these is me. Mm-hmm. How did I'm smart. How did I not realize that this is me? That's, that's common, though, that a lot of people are in it and find ways to, to justify what's happening, maybe, or to tell a different story to themselves. Or maybe we think that we can't tell people that we're failing. I'm a huge proponent of being transparent and open. And I think when we don't talk about things that are really happening with us, we aren't, everyone thinks that we have to keep a facade. And we all are people that have gone through extreme situations. And I grew up in a home that didn't have a lot of money and had a lot of chaos. We moved all the time. And changed schools. I went to so many schools just up until my high school years. And so I was used to a level of chaos Mm -hmm. that I suppose walking into a marriage of chaos, it didn't feel wrong. I didn't know. And the, the biggest thing in the sheriff's office that day was I realized at that moment denial is not seeing the problem and ignoring it. Denial is you don't see the problem. Yeah. And you just, you, you are physically incapable of seeing the situation that you're in. So it was kind of eye-opening for me. I didn't realize that at that point they would file charges. It was out of my control. It kind of spiraled. And I knew I didn't want to walk back into a situation. So um, I was, we had a business together. And he took the keys to my car. And I convinced a car dealership to sell me a little blue Hyundai. I named her Belle after <laughs> the fairy tale Belle. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't even know how I drove off the lot. Like I had nothing. I had zero, I just somebody, like it was just God looking out for me. But I drove off a lot in a little blue Hyundai, cost me $12,000 all those years ago with high interest rates. My parents who had very little money gave me $100. I put my clothes in the back seat of the car, and I drove here because my aunt and uncle were here. And you headed south. I headed south. Were you in your 20s at the time? I like, was, Were you yeah. young, I was young 20s? Yeah. Or? I, yeah. My, well, and really a baby. You know, mm-hmm. I'd gotten married way too young, married somebody older than me, and this is where I came. What, what did that starting over process or that healing process, however you want to define that. Mm. What did that look like in Amarillo, like the, the the years after you got here? And it's an interesting, the starting over. So what's great about Amarillo and the things that I love are I could be a creative person and a smart, strategic person in Denver, and I'm just one of many. But Amarillo is such a place of opportunity, mm-hmm. and this is a place where you can succeed. 
So um, some of my first memories are really going into Roasters when it was just first opened. And I remember, you the, know, the Wolfland Village, the Wolfland version. Village yeah. version. And I was so surprised that Amarillo even had a coffee shop that, you know, it was just so rare. There were no Starbucks no. at that time. There was nothing. And um, they they knew me. And so they would remember my coffee. And they had a little file index where they you would keep your name. And I had an account and I would pay. Like I'd just go in, grab my coffee, and then pay once a month for all my coffees that they would hand tally wow. and write, which is really fun. But that was what made Amarillo. It was even the hand tallying of the account. Like there was a place where people knew you and that we, everyone was friendly and there, this is a place of opportunity. What kind of jobs did you land with when you got here? So I um, opened one of the very first cell phone stores in Denver. Okay. And um, that's what you were doing. That's what I was then. doing. Had right. a cell phone store. It was back when they paid huge commissions. We would close the shop and go ski. And as long as we sold a few phones, we were good. <laughs> it was actually a great time to be in the cell phone. And that's really where my heart is, is that trying to figure out how to have a small cell phone store in the middle of all these big, it was when the grocery stores were doing phones and they were just getting started. They were really big in our trunks. They weren't even handheld at that point. And I was just a baby learning how to program those. But I also was, you know, a female business owner mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how to make it in that big world. That was real heavy duty. And figuring some of the things out and learning how organic reach happens, even at that stage. or Even before it, people would use that yes. phrase. I talked to Mike Rosen, who is now syndicated. He was a... Um, AM talk show host, I said, I'll give you one of my phones that uh, is a dealer gets to have, and it's unlimited minutes if you'll talk about us on air. And something, when he did it and the phone started ringing, it just like clicked with me. Oh my gosh, figuring this out and the strategy behind this, this was really cool. So I had that telecommunications background and um, came here. And um, Cellular One was actually right by my aunt and uncle's house. Okay. So I, the, the next day, I knew I needed money. I did my resume. I had to go to the library to do my resume and worked on I was really broken, too. There's no words to say what it does to you emotionally to go through mm -hmm. a just the violence of that one evening. So I was, it took me a year before I really had my head on straight. I mean, I literally was going through the motions, reliving that night of violence over and over. So just doing my resume took everything I had at that mm -hmm. library. It probably took me a week. I don't know. Just, But I dropped my resume off at a, a search place on, I can't even remember the name of it now. I wish I could. But they just job hunt, you know, headhunter, and I dropped my resume off. And by the time I got back home, that I had a call, and Cellular One wanted to interview me. So just went, started in customer service. I was thinking this was just temporary, and um, I fell in love with the owner of Cellular One. And that's it's like my dad. I fell in love with him because he's father figure, is much older than I am, but just so connected with him from New York was so grateful. They connected with me. And um, they are really the reasons I stayed okay. is because that they became my family. They threw raise after raise on me, you know, started with a really small 
salary of just answering phones and working in customer service. I have some great stories about what people used to call customer service with the cell phones. But um, they threw so much money at me. And and they and the owner, apparently, they had said to him, hey, we've got this great resume. We've got a really good girl. Who's just And he said, oh, she won't stay. She's from Denver. She's not going to stick around. And so I heard that. And that probably made me stay even more. Right, <laughs> because challenge them. on. If you tell me it can't be done, I will show you. Well, <laughs> you were working for Cellular One when we met. When yes. we first worked together. Uh-huh. I was at uh, That's right. Trafton at the time. Um, how long did that last? I was there 10 years, okay. and it was really hard to go through the sale. So I actually... So, yeah, like obviously that's not a thing anymore. So no. what happened while you were there? So we were there 10 years, and then you're just... That is really just the story of a small local. We had the Potter and Roundup County license, but not beyond that. But as the bigger companies started coming through with AT&T, um, it wasn't even AT&T that time. Singular, it was, there was, was, it was wild, even wireless, Southwest. Or? I think it, it was, um, gosh, those are so many date, long days. Yeah. But those two competitors were just, you know, they were buying down phones. They had great roaming, things that we couldn't compete with. But what that there came a point where technology was moving so rapidly and it was so millions and millions of dollars to update technology. And then we knew it was time to sell. Yeah. It's strange to think of a small, you know, cell phone company over a couple of counties, Mm -hmm. you know, competing in a world now where it's all Verizon, AT&T, you know, these big names. We used to get calls. We had a 1995 plan that gave, I think, like 15 minutes. And people always thought we were too expensive. That's what's so funny now. Or we were buying down the phone. So you got a free phone. You um, we had a contract for a couple of years. And you got a couple hundred minutes. And we'd have people call all the time. Just, it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. It's too expensive. Now I look at our cell phone bills and what we're paying with phones. I'm right. like, I wonder what those customers are saying now. Exactly. Well, it's just inflation. (laughs) What was your thought process as you saw that maybe not winding down, but maybe changing? I'm sure you could see the writing on the wall. Um, What did you think was going to happen after that point? Career-wise for you. Career-wise, you know, you just don't know. They took great care of us. So all of the senior managers, we were well taken care of. Um, Altel bought us, and they offered incentives for me to stay for a year to be sure that all of the customers you know, came on, stayed. And then, so I felt like I was in a good place, but you don't know. It is really starting over after building a 10-year career in telecommunications. And I wanted to be able to do what I loved instead of just letting life take us places. I think we all have, we got where we are because life just kind of happened and just being intentional about what we're doing. But I was on the board of the Discovery Center and they asked if I'd come on board. And I said, I don't know if I want to do nonprofit after being in that for-profit world. But I said, I'll consult for you. And so they brought me in. I was actually on the board that hired the executive director who came from California. And then he, in turn, hired me as a consultant. So I took all of the areas that had the ability to earn revenue and then um, helped all of those grow. So I got to be a big part of the After Dark series, mm-hmm. creating some of that, being on the inaugural Mad Scientist Ball, all the fun things. And that was really, really where um, if you talk about being a kid in a playground, yeah. creating some of those adult events was really great. Was that a shift in maybe maybe how you thought of your career? I mean, did were you 
were you doing more strategic things or more marketing oriented things once you started consulting with the Discovery Center, or was that kind of an extension of what you'd been doing? It was an extension of what I was always, what I was already doing. Funny story about Cellular One. So I love seeing a need, and then again, game on. If you say it can't be done, let's see if we can try it. But I had heard about eight hundred two point eleven. And yeah. said to the owner, who's Ken Iskell, still a dear friend, I call him when I am in a pickle and just need some good business advice. And I said, Ken, we can use our towers and put up 802.11 and we can build a Wi-Fi network where people could use their laptops all over Amarillo. And of course, his eyes glaze over. He doesn't even see it. He said, okay, I'll invest the money for the equipment, but you're going to have to get the clients. Yeah. So... I loaded up, got my little brochures, you know, made all of the collateral that came with it and started knocking doors. Roasters was the first one that said yes. So we put a tower, we put what was then cutting edge wireless tower on the building that then blew out high speed, which was probably not even very high speed, blew it out to the whole facility. So I'm thinking, okay, next shop stop is Barnes and Noble. They have a coffee store. They are going to say, yes, it's going to be great. I'm going to build that network. They flat out said, no, we don't think our customers would want to use their laptops while having coffee in the store. That sounds crazy. Who would want to do that? That's right. So that kind of let's figure things out. Let's solve a problem. Let's grab an area that is not being utilized and we can get more revenue. That's really what I love. It's the strategic problems. And then doing the creative follow-up is where you would come in and I'd say, okay, Jason, this is what we have in our heads. What do you think? Can we make it happen? I think some of those high-speed internet brochures were some of the things that we worked on. Together. I'm sure we did. Yeah. And you were helping me. You were putting it all together. So I could like I like the overhead looking at the big picture and here's where we need to go. And then getting all of the right, smart, mm-hmm. really people to come alongside me and help make it happen. So that's what we did at the Discovery Center is we took that same concept and saw things then just looking at it from a for-profit, you know, nonprofits technically don't ever look at their own enterprise ability Mm -hmm. and what they can make. The Discovery Center doesn't have this mindset anymore, but back then the mindset was, okay, Discover isn't raising money. Mr. Donor, will you give us more money? And they're not thinking of, okay, should we raise ticket prices? Should we do all of that? They're just asking for more money. And a lot of nonprofits have the ability to generate their own revenue. When did you start to think okay, this consulting is going to be more than kind of a temporary, this is what I'll do now. I'll help the Discovery Center. When did you start thinking, all right, maybe this is this is what I'm going to do? What was working at the Discovery Center just led to me getting, bringing on more clients. Okay. And it just started to grow. It was really an organic kind of growth where just more and more. Um, and I have a niche that isn't really as much highly creative as, as it is being strategic and meeting deadlines and just doing the right thing for people. When did that turn into Novox? Um, Because it's not really a shift. It's the same type of work, but it felt like sort of a reorganization of how you thought of it. When it was bringing on new bringing on employees, then shifted it. Okay. okay I've got to have a building. It's not just you anymore. It's not me anymore. I got to have an official, I'm going to have to do payroll. And so no box was formed. And it's funny because 
I really didn't want the name No Box, but it is very difficult in the state of Texas to get any creative name, even if you're going to put creative in it. So they kept on nixing all my initial names. So finally, out of des- desperation, I was like, what about No Box? They said, you can have it. I was like, great. What do I, I do with that it. name? <laughs> what year was that? When, when that did was, you officially start? I think that was 2010. Okay. It's well, been a while. Tell me how you thought about that process not not only in you know switching from like you were doing telecommunications and and that's a very direct focus on one thing and then you're applying that same sort of mindset the creativity the problem solving but it's for a lot of different things was that a difficult transition to make for you it's difficult but the best thing is that in the Texas panhandle your audience is relatively the same. Okay. So if you know your audience and you know how these people think what they're looking for, you know what I learned from Cellular One and dealing with the cl- the customers and seeing what they wanted. My most surprising picture snapshot of Amarillo is at, at build at when it was time for bills to be paid, the line would be out the door. People were coming in paying their bills. And so I'm walking through as a manager, I'm going, this is ridiculous. Why are all these people here? We can't sell phones. There's too many people wanting to pay their bills. So I had this great idea that we would do an outside Dropbox. So we bust into the brick. We get it all ready. We have the payment Dropbox. We're so excited about it. And next bill due date, they're in the lobby with their payments, walking right by the payment Dropbox. And um, I, I could walk through as a manager and say, hey, are you dropping off a payment? They'd say, yeah. And I'd say, okay, I'll take it for you. They didn't even know who I was, but they were handing off their payment. It was so much safer in their minds yeah. than putting it in the lockbox, you know, outside. So that just says who the Texas Panhandle, that, that's just a perfect picture of what the people of the Texas Panhandle look like. And once you know your audience, it takes a while and it really is a brain drain to learn so many different industries and understand how they work. But once I understand how this business operates and what their services are, the audience is still very similar. I love nonprofits because we're really looking at the audience. I love the city government work, any of that, because we're talking about people and their needs. And Mm -hmm. we just, once we know the people, I think that's what makes anything effective. If you understand your audience and you know who these people are, that's when we get the message right. And I'm thinking of the timeline, you know, 2010, starting doing doing that. It was a it was a period where there had been a lot of change in the creative world in Amarillo. Some of the larger agencies were going away or getting bought out. And, you know, a lot of employees had moved from one place to another place. We've all worked together, all that kind of stuff. Plus, it was right after, you know, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. Like, did, did you feel like you were taking kind of a, a risky step or did it feel like, all right, this is, this is what I'm supposed to do now? It felt like what this is what I was supposed to do. There's always a level of risk taking that you have to be comfortable with. There, your personality is going to be okay with that. I, after you, I moved here with $100, I really didn't I like, have a That sense. was a risk. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, after that, that, if I can move here, I look back at just coming here so broken, $100, my clothes in the back of a Hyundai that I don't even know how I got the loan for. And just like, I can do anything. So that mindset, it is the layers of our past that make us brave and make us who we are. But you know, it didn't feel like a risk because I've already knew what it was like to lose everything. And it doesn't really, it's not that bad. Like you can lose everything and you still have life and we're still okay. It, it It's not as scary as it sounds. 
I'd like to hear a little bit about how your business developed um, or has developed over the past you know decade or so, because I I know you've talked about nonprofits and you've done a lot of nonprofit work. You've also done a lot of for-profit work. You mentioned having done some government and political stuff. Like your your focus is so broad now, and I wonder if you can tell me like what do you feel are are the strengths now that that you're providing your clients? Like why are they coming to you? You know, when a lot of big companies, they could go find a, a an agency in Dallas to do their work for them. Why this kind of homespun Amarillo agency? Why are they choosing you? Well, I number one, be, because we know the area and we know the market mm-hmm. and we understand the people. And number two, the, so you mentioned political. That is like my creative release. There is such a high that is like this there's a win or lose. Yeah. And you are doing everything you can and you're working as hard as you can, you know, long hours in the week to win or lose. And so winning when Elaine Hayes won, which we really didn't think that she was going to win, she was up against an incumbent. I mean, I cried with her like I just won. That was my victory too. So there's something about that that gets in your blood and kind of is like the fun thing to do. All of the strategy, everything about that is exciting, Mm -hmm. high pressure. It gets your adrenaline going and it makes some of the more mundane things. Sorry, clients that are mundane, but you know, makes some of those. (laughs) But everybody loves the mundane clients. Yeah. That's the bread and butter stuff. There's a personal satisfaction to the political, and it matters to me. So I, it's just as important for us to interview those clients and say, Do, should you be leading? Are you the right leader? Hmm. I don't want to help anyone win who doesn't deserve. Yeah, like why are you good running? Leader. Right. Yeah. And I do a pretty, you know, I'll search on background, see what people are saying. I call people. Do you know this person? Would they be a good leader? What do you know about them? I really want to be sure that if I'm going to invest in you and invest my time and help you win, that you're the right person for the job. As you know, we're living in a climate right now where politics, even local politics, is just incredibly divisive, um, even even within the same party structure. You know, as a business owner, when that is part of what you do, political campaigns, does do you ever worry about that? Do you ever worry that, OK, I'm going to. I'm going to do work for this candidate, knowing that people are going to be mad at that candidate, win or lose, and you're associated with a person. Like, how do you get your mind around that when everybody else in business just wants to appeal to everyone else all the time? That, you know, that I'd never really thought of it that way. I'm really careful on my personal social media pages not to promote candidates Mm -hmm. and really trying to stay neutral. And I am one where, you know, it's sad to me that so many people think because they said something on Facebook, they actually did something. But saying something on Facebook isn't going to change the world. I mean, those of you who are in comments, you know, arguing mm. or making a post, by God, let me tell you, you know, it's not helping. And the algorithms on social, Facebook is intentionally showing you things that you are going to like. So you're not seeing opposing views and you're thinking everybody believes like you. So it's just one thing that I do feel strongly about is the politics should stay off social. It just is. It's very divisive. I think it's ruining our, our, our world, our nation for sure. But so I try to stay out of that. Mm-hmm. It's just I'm not going to talk about it. And I'm not going to talk what's going on. If I see something that I really care about that's happening, I'll mention it. But I and there's been a few times that I've said, hey, this is who I'm voting for. But I felt, you know, pretty good about it. 
But um, so I try not to pull as many lines. We're just not going to go there politically. And if we could do that as humans, we'd all be better friends. I also know that a lot of the the work you've done, be, because you have some experience in campaigns, has also ended up putting you in a position to like plan big events and help strategize for the rollouts of you know new concepts, new ideas, um, you know new focuses. And I, I wonder, like, if is is that event planning side? Does that feel like a natural extension of the kind of work that you've been doing, or is that is that like a different category? It's probably like another one of those fun, like you need some fun things that bring you life and bring, just bring that energy back. So they're just fun. I like, but it's, it's going to be mostly their events that are strategic. Mm-hmm. I love seeing if there's a need and we're fulfilling it in some ways, you know, I just guess, I guess after all of the years that I've been in business, I want to do things that are meaningful and I want to feel like I'm going to leave this world better than I found it and that I've done something to contribute to my world, the place where I live and my community. So that's really the things that I'm going to take. Those events are going to be things that are close to me and they matter. And when it comes down to it, it really is because I love the people. Mm-hmm. If it affects the people in this community that I love and it's going to be better for them, you count me in. And I have, I don't even know if I say this on the air, but usually people will say, Hey, can I count you in? And then I never bill for that. Time. <laughs> Cause it's like, I want to, you, we want to, and yeah. we go through our twenties, not realizing like life just kind of takes us. And then you wake up and you're 40 and you think, what am I doing with the limited years? The time as a mom, this time that I have taken away from my kids and really, if you look at my greatest accomplishments, I just look at my young men that I've raised, two boys who are now almost 18 and one's 21. And those are my big accomplishments. How did I do this while juggling clients? I mean, I have so many funny stories about having a baby. I'd be on a conference call with a toddler on my arm. And I one time he was crying and I'm on a call. And I put him out the back door, don't call CPS, and I could see the glass, and I just closed the da- glass, and he stood on the other side bawling his eyes out, and I was on the other side making my call, just looking at him, waving, smiling, trying to get him to, you know, that that's your, you, we want to do the right thing for our community. And it's about, as parents, when it comes down to it, what are we doing in, to create a community for our kids? How are they going to come back here? Is this the world? Is this the city that they are going to want to come and raise their kids in? Speaking of, of the city, you know, you, you kind of ended up here because trauma pushed you in this direction. Uh, but you stayed here and, and haven't just like invested in the area by, you know, creating a small business and serving clients here. But like you're investing in the area by actively, you know, working alongside some of the leaders, the city leaders. And I, I wonder, like, if you look back and you're like, how am I in Amarillo? Why, why am I still here? Or if it feels surprising that this has become your place? Um, or if it feels like, oh, well, of course, this has become my place. That's a good question. It feels like... You're, it- you're still like a... A mountain girl, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. That, that's a maybe a demeaning mm-hmm. way to say it. But like, I, I know that that's still a part of your personality. 
Oh, it is. In fact, some of my funnier stories was I'd walk into roasters with my hair wet and, you know, sweats and a t-shirt and be, I'd marvel at how beautiful all the women looked with their makeup fully done. I'd be like, I don't know if I'm going to fit in this town. And there's many times that I feel like just, I maybe don't, which is why I love the mountains. I grew up skiing. I love all of that, but it goes back to the people. There is just something special about the people here. And even when you think demographically, it's not a fit. This is just a place of opportunity and welcoming people. There is people see, we all want to be seen and heard. And a basic need of all of us is that someone understood me, someone saw me, someone heard me. In this community, this size, that happens a lot. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by Purpose and Passion Boutique. Located in Wolfland Village, Purpose and Passion combines shopping with great causes. The gifts you buy there are gifts that give back. They're gifts that have a purpose. Now, I love the story and the focus of Purpose and Passion. I even interviewed owner Kristen DeWright for the podcast back in May of this year. You can look that up. But right now, the boutique is accepting donations for the organization Colorful Closets. And that will last through the month of August. Colorful Closets needs new or gently used boys and men's shorts, along with new underwear for all ages. You can bring that stuff to Purpose and Passion Boutique in Wolfland Village. Go shop there while you're at it. Or check them out online at purposeandpassionboutique.com. Hey Amarillo is also sponsored by Book Puma, an editorial firm that provides online learning and book editing services, changing the way authors and publishing professionals interact. This platform helps writers finish their books and become published authors, with online courses taught by award-winning authors, editors, and industry professionals. To learn more, visit bookpumaonline.com. That's bookpumaonline.com. Okay, I'm back with Kim May. Kim, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes, and you're going to like this, I picked this for you. Its collection includes a display of authentic, historic cowboy tools and clothing items, and one of those on display is a Sailor One mobile phone from 1995. I didn't so know So you've got cowboy chaps and you've got gloves and lariat and a cell phone from the 90s, which I think is really funny. That's awesome. I, I love that items I used when I was a young adult are now in museums. So anyway, that's uh, that's fun to see. You can learn more about that at panhandleplains.org. Okay, first question. When you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? I hope it's a place that our kids will want to be here and that it's safe and it's still that welcoming community where people care about each other and look out for each other. Do you think in order for it to become that, does anything need to change? Are we on a trajectory toward that? Or is, is there any uncertainty about that with you? You know, humanity as a whole is on a trajectory to not care for each other. <laughs> so Let's all of it scares me. Like the whole world needs to do that. But, um, you know, as long as we keep some of those, it's it's really just the the values and the morals of love your neighbor as yourself. You know, it's it's very simple. If we look from a crime aspect, I do, I do see that we're having trouble recruiting police officers, first responders. You know, we can only do so much. We need good judges. It's one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. I love politics. Let's get good judges in office. 
um, who can stop and get people behind bars and we get our repeat offenders off the streets. But um, so it's, you know, I, I do, I have concerns. Like, are we going to be able to hire? Are we going to be able to recruit officers to Amarillo at the pay rate scale they need to be in a community where they'll want to stay? Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? Ah, well, um, I would say really boring restaurants. Okay. <laughs> Sandwiches, barbecue. <laughs> so you look at that. We, Amarillo people know what they like and restaurant owners know what their customers like. The menus are all the same. I'd love to see. I've got a few favorites that are variety. But um, on a serious note, we have way too many dogs in shelters. Mm, and yeah. we our shelters are overflowing. It pains me that we have so many irresponsible pet owners that are surrendering or not spaying and neutering their dogs. And we have such a problem. It, it pains me. Yeah. I, I'm not familiar with the statistics outside Amarillo. I wonder if it's different here than other places or if that's a, a wider problem. We have per capita probably some of the highest pet population per capita than anyone really? in the state of Texas. Okay. And I don't know those numbers. I should have looked them up, but we do have a problem. All right. What does this area not have enough of? If you asked me last week, I would say a variety of um, high-end grocery stores like HEB. Mm-hmm. This week, I we do not have enough trash collectors. <laughs> well, that's that is true. <laughs> Everyone's suddenly realizing that. Oh my goodness! Yeah, um, which is it is such a, a strange problem to have captured. You know the uh, the internet this week. It's, it's not something you anticipate. I mean, people cities all over the place ha- are having uh, problems with hiring and. Uh, enough employees and all that stuff, but nobody thinks about trash service until like it's disrupted, it and then everybody's passionate I about know. it. So let's hire new trash collectors. Yeah, it sounds like a fun job to me. You just drive a cool truck around, you know. I know. Do the little thing, dump the the, the dumpsters. If you did, they used to have Amarillo one on one one on one where you could go every month do some of that. So I got to drive all of those things oh, really? and drive one, pick up one of the pickers, and pick up a. Refrigerator was, was actually. It fun? Oh, it's it my seems favorite like day. Fun. Driving all those equipment was pretty great. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Ah, oh, that's a good one. It really is a welcoming place of community. And when I moved here, I thought the population is very similar to Pueblo, Colorado. Okay. Which, when I moved here, Pueblo really just had a few stores. You know, just not any of the arts. Not great restaurants and mock the restaurants, but we have great restaurants. Plus the, um, the portion of Pueblo that the interstate goes through is not the prettiest no. part of Pueblo. So I really was, I came with the mindset that I was coming to a place with horrible wind. I was coming to Pueblo with bad wind. Yeah. Okay. Wouldn't even want to be outside. So I was so surprised at the arts, the restaurants, the medical community, really understanding the hub. But, you know, I, I get so frustrated that places like Apple won't look at Amarillo. And I wish that they would gauge how we are the hub mm-hmm. for the entire panhandle, eastern New Mexico. We've got plenty of population. Yeah, they only see our 200,000 people mm-hmm. in the city mm-hmm. limits. They don't see the 490,000 yeah. in the 26 counties surrounding mm-hmm. us. So one thing is getting sold out at this one store because they're thinking we're servicing only these 200,000, yeah. but people are driving in to buy that one thing, and they're not really seeing that. So it's really just it's – a, it's a, it feels like a suburb to a bigger city. We've got a lot to offer. I mean, if you look at what's happening downtown – 
and in just Hodgetown, some of the great, it's so fun to be on Polk Street yeah. at night. What is your favorite street in Amarillo? Well, fondly, I really love 6th Street. And it was one of the first streets that I fell in love with coming, moving here. And there was something about it being quirky and having a lot of creativity. And there was a really great coffee store and restaurant that was on 6th Street across from the news. I can't remember what it was called. But um, so I came a lot. And sometimes when I was homesick or lonesome, I'd either go to Paladero Canyon or I'd go to 6th Street because it felt like it had some culture. Okay. What's your favorite local restaurant? Oh, I have a couple. Um, I love Public House just as, you know, go, love the people, the food. But um, I am pretty smitten with Girasol and order their food. Con they know my order. <laughs> they mm -hmm. have it ready. But there's something about sitting on the patio, going yeah. on a Saturday, and it doesn't feel like Emerald. feels like we're somewhere else. Girasol is one of those kind of hidden gems that a lot of people don't know about is because it's not a real prominent location, no. but once you find it, you're like, Oh, this is, this is oh, the place. great food. She's an incredible chef. And, um, roosters is another one that's like yeah. that. They're just the expositors are out there. He's just cooking. Like his daily specials are amazing. So that, that's what we've got so much of that in Amarillo. It's, it's pretty amazing. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Ah, uh, so, um, I mentioned roasters just because I knew it, but um, I am really proud of all of our coffee owners. Crystal and Patrick at Palace are amazing. I have a client that started a little coffee shop in the um, A and B building that's just down in Ebby's, and hmm. they've got great coffee. So, but I we got smart many years ago and ordered us a coffee house big espresso machine mm -hmm. and my husband can make a mean coffee so right. i guess it'd have to be so the main house you yeah. don't need those <laughs> yeah that's right all right when was the last time you visited the big texan ah that's funny i love this question so bobby lee is a friend and was a client for many years his his boys actually interned for us did they really and i knew I that, that yeah both patrick and and um tyler and we knew that we would lose them as a client when yeah. the boys got old enough to work there but so i've been many times having a beer with bobby or delivering something up but um have only eaten there once and we took our staff um one time as you know back when we were, they were first clients of ours so that we could test out the restaurant. Mm -hmm. It was really fun to see that. But every time I've driven up to drop anything off, they are packed, even in the morning. It's it is wild. Astonishing. The, the last time I tried to go, um, I had family in town and they wanted to go to the Big Texan. And so we went and it was like going to be a two hour wait. And I even texted Bobby. I was like, is there any way around this no. kind of thing? It just... it's, it's insane. And what managing their social media it would surprise you at how they are really to the rest of the world. They are the icon of Texas mm -hmm. and Amarillo. And if you think of Amarillo, that's what people are thinking. But the people that were from out of the, they were in other countries saying, I can't wait to visit you someday. They would send messages. We just, we, if we ever get to Texas, we are coming to Amarillo. Just that iconically across the world, people are looking forward to a meal at the Big Texan. Yeah, at, which is crazy. And I don't think the city recognizes that they like don't. we should. I don't think Because don't. the Big Texan is not for us necessarily. It's for all those people wanting to visit, but... 
uh, it's a it's a treasure. And it's it gets that way everywhere. You don't realize our hometown hero, heroes. We don't appreciate that. But the Lee family has just built something really special that um, I'm proud that Amarillo has something like that. And as kitschy as it is, it just fits. And it, it's it's a great stop. Well, and it's a magnet it for is. the city. So. Yeah. Okay, Kim, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? My youngest son has type 1 diabetes. And as we were looking at things that we wanted to do and how we wanted to make an impact for him, who's been living with it for a while, I started a non helped start a nonprofit. Um, so it's a local diabetes foundation of the High Plains. Okay. And, um, it's all the money stays here, the board I'm on the board and we're all volunteer and we have no staff and we have a fundraiser coming up. We do one fundraiser a year. It's rope for a cure. It's August 13th, I believe. And we'll be selling raffle tickets, but you can find everything you need at diabetes foundation of the high plains. Okay. We've got a Facebook page, but that's a nonprofit that's near and dear to my heart help run that, help make the decisions for it. And it, it sends our local kids to camp and it, we do things for new, newly diagnosed families. And it's part of the reason that I feel like I get to give back and yeah. do something good for not just my son, but all of the families. Okay. Kim May, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Kim for the interview. You can learn more about her and her business at noboxcreative.biz. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and also to sponsors the Texas Outdoor Musical, Purpose and Passion Boutique, Book Puma, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring the show. This podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jess Heredia, Wilson Lemieux, Josh Wood, Corey Burns, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 258. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>